podcast. I'm Hamel Javeri, and I'm filling in for our host, Ted Berg, today, who is busy traversing through the national parks of Utah. But to make up for it, I've got two incredible guests with me today, uh, Corey Richards and Adrian Ballinger, who are going to scale Mount Everest um, this May, hopefully. Adrian is a six-time summiter of Everest, and Corey summited last year. Adrian is also a uh, mountaineering guide. In Adrian, where are you guiding? Uh, I guide all over the world. So my company, Alpenglow Expeditions, is based out of Lake, Lake Tahoe, California. Okay. We do a lot of ski guiding and rock climbing here, but we also run trips on all seven continents. Oh, nice. And Corey is a award-winning photographer and visual storyteller, um, and his work has been all over the place, Outside Magazine and National Geographic, just to give you a couple of examples. Adrian, Corey, welcome to the show. Thank you guys so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Uh, my first question for you, and I want to get this out of the way because I know that everybody asks you all the time, but I think it's important. Why Everest and why are you guys going up again after you uh, made the summit trip in 2016? Uh, well, um, I, so Adrian, I, think... I know, let me, let me just say that Corey was able to summit and then Adrian, I know you had to turn back actually. That's right. So I've summited six times before, but always while guiding other people to the summit of the mountain. So always while wearing oxygen. Mm -hmm. And 2016 was my first attempt without supplemental oxygen, uh, which has really been a personal dream for me. I turned around a couple of hours before, below the summit after a two and a half month expedition. So that's why I'm going back. Corey, uh, Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I'm going back because, this, you know, this has always been a partnership. And... Um, and I'm psyched for uh, for AB this year, and and I don't feel like the trip was uh, entirely complete last year. So, um, you know, I mean, Everest Everest holds a very special place for for everybody. Uh, it's it's a great unifier, and it's a great leveler, and it uh, you know doesn't know any sort of nationalism or anything like that. As much as people try to. Uh, you know, put that on it, and uh, I think you know. Aside from our personal goals, that's just a really uh, that's an exceptional. Um, it's an exceptional place, and we need more uh, more places like that, more unifying places on the planet right now. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Um, let me circle back to what you just said that you wanted to do it without O2. So I assume that a lot of people aren't familiar with. Um, mountain climbing, but a lot of people summon Everest with the help of supplemental oxygen. Why is it important for you guys to do it without supplemental O2? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, for me, I've, so I've spent the last nine years on the mountain. This will be my 10th spring season going back and spending two months there. So I've obviously seen a lot on Mount Everest. And for a bit of perspective, there's been about 7,000 ascents of the mountain with supplemental oxygen. Mm -hmm. And there's been 193 without supplemental oxygen. So it's really this, you know, uh, more pure or elite way to climb the mountain. And that's not to take anything away from climbing it with oxygen. It's an incredible challenge still and an incredible experience. But for me as a professional alpinist, a professional climber, um, I've found that I know I can climb it with oxygen. I've done it six times before. And so I want to challenge myself on the mountain to where the the, the outcome is truly unknown. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's without supplemental oxygen. So, so if I can, so the six times that you summited before that was with oxygen because you were guiding right. people. Okay. 
Corey, what about you? Yeah, I, I mean, I feel very much the same way as Adrian. I've always felt uh, as though, you know, if I can, um, I should raise my level to, to that of the arena that I'm choosing to engage with or mm -hmm. in versus bringing that arena down to my level. And again, you know, to echo Adrian's sentiment about not – uh, not slagging on or not uh, putting down anybody that's climbed the mountain without ox or with oxygen. It's just not my chosen style. Um, it, it pushes the odds, and uh, for me, that makes it more valuable. And I think I learn more about myself by doing it that way. Um, and I learn more about potential failure and potential success, and and how to manage that uh, with both lower expectation and higher commitment. Is that more dangerous? It seems it seems like it's more dangerous. Oh, it's infinitely more dangerous. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. It's actually you know, is really what it is. It's uh, but but you know whatever. I, I try to avoid that part of it too. So. <laughs> and I, and I, I think of it a little bit differently. Like I I think the danger on a mountain like Mount Everest mm -hmm. comes from generally poor decision making or non conservative decision making. Um, of course, there are random acts that can happen that can get us killed up there. Mm -hmm. But a, a, a majority of the accidents on the mountain are completely preventable. And so when I think, I don't think the danger necessarily needs to be much higher without supplemental oxygen. We just need to be that much more conservative and everything has to fall into place and be just right to stand on top and to get back down alive. And, you know, last year I could have, very easily tried to keep pushing and and maybe i would have done it but much more likely i think i would have ended up a statistic and a body left uh, you know at twenty eight and a half thousand feet on the mountain and so you know despite how badly i wanted that summit mm -hmm. the conservative decision was to turn around and uh, you know we need to make those same smart decisions with or without oxygen so did you make that decision by yourself or did you have people telling you okay it's it's time to turn around it's a great question. So I was, in my person, I was on my own. So Corey had actually gotten ahead of me on the mountain. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because he was stronger on that summit push. I was struggling with cold. And so I had been shivering and losing feeling in my hands for a number of hours before I turned around. Mm -hmm. And that sort of feeling really started to slow my pace down. So Corey wasn't with me in person, but he was on the radio, on a walkie-talkie. Mm -hmm. And then also, we always, whenever we go on these Everest expeditions, we actually have an expedition doctor, her mm -hmm. name's Monica Pires. She stays in base camp and is advising us constantly on our health. Mm -hmm. And she's an essential part of the team because essentially, she isn't dealing with the sort of like stupidity from lack of oxygen that we're dealing with up high. So she has a really clear head and a less emotional feeling for the whole thing because mm -hmm. she isn't up there. So both Corey and Monica were talking to me on the radio. I actually couldn't talk back because my hands were too frozen to push the radio button. Jesus. But I could listen and I knew their concern as well as what I was feeling myself. Wow. So are you, um, in terms of preserving this decision making, are you guys making any changes for your climb this year as opposed to last year? Well, yes. 
you go ahead because you, you're actually making more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I think there's two big areas where I'm making changes. And remember, I've been climbing pretty much full-time at high altitude for 20 years now, and I, I've been lucky enough to have a lot of success. So I have a lot of confidence with, you know, the, the, die, the dice could have rolled a little bit differently last year, and the day could have been slightly warmer, and I might have stood on top. But at the same time, there's nothing. I just don't want to go back and try the exact same thing and hope to get lucky. Mm -hmm. So two, two sort of areas I've changed with the help of Corey. A big one is that I'm trying not to also be running my uh, guide company team on the mountain at the same time that I attempt this personal ascent, which last year I was sort of splitting my time across both. So this year I've really separated myself from the team and the logistics. Um, Alpenglow still has a team on the mountain, but it's fully being guided by other guides and the chef and the doctor. And I'm going to focus 100% of my energy on my climb this year. Okay. And that's, then the, the, yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> I was like, whoa, that's two jobs, but two jobs on Everest. That's that's a lot. <laughs> And I think it's something that I went into just feeling totally like that was realistic. And it's really been Corey watching me and seeing my energy output and seeing where I started to fall apart on the climb last year. He's, he, I feel like he's going to be my bouncer this year to kind of make sure that I don't start splitting my energy in that way. Yeah, I am. I am his his. Um... You know, I am his bouncer this year for sure, uh, starting his, uh, from his own company, which is great. I love that. Uh, no, it's. Uh, I mean, Adrian just has a lot of energy, and he wants. You know, when when he's there with his company, it's impossible for him to completely emotionally separate from it, right? Because mm -hmm. as a business owner and as somebody who owns my own business, when I see things not being run properly, which they always are. It's just hard not to get involved. So there's just pride there, you know, like he wants to make it work perfectly. And my job is to sort of step in there and say, hey, you know, like your guides, uh, they've got this. They, you don't need to do that and sort and help him preserve his energy um, for, for our summit push. Because, you know, like both of our coaches say who work together, uh, Scott Johnson and Steve House, um, they're like, you know, this, this is it's all training until summit day. Mm -hmm. So basically we're holding each other accountable the entire time for the energy output. And all of this sounds really serious. It's a ton of fun, but we do try to watch how each other uh, are, are sort of uh, spending emotional energy and or physical energy. So this is a really good segue into kind of my next question, which is that you guys last year kind of became Snapchat famous for broadcasting um, the Everest Ascent on Snapchat. But what I thought was really compelling was kind of the bond that you guys shared throughout throughout the thing. That's what made it so interesting for, for you guys. Um, I hate to do the like talk about question, but... You know, you're talk about your bond. Like it's very apparent when you guys are talking to each other, and it sounds like it's a real partnership up there. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any question that. Well, first of all, first and foremost, I mean, as much as this is about Adrian, I think he would agree as well that climbing partnerships are deeply special, especially mm -hmm. when they're chosen out of uh, out of desire to climb with one another versus. You know, we're on the same team. The fact that we're both on the Eddie Bauer team is amazing, and that gives us this ability to go do this stuff. But um, quite frankly, the the bond that's shared between climbing partners is one like I'm not. I've never even, uh, yeah, I've never experienced anything like it outside of it. And and really, what it amounts to is is a 
I mean, it is sort of a life and death bond. I don't want to make it too dramatic, but the fact is that you are accountable and responsible to and for each other's lives. Mm -hmm. And when you have that amount of gravity sort of pulling you together, it's impossible not to um, really, you know, I mean, to, to have a sort of a concrete friendship that transcends, um, you know, convention. Uh, and, and I think, yeah, I mean, I like to joke. It's, it's, it's like, it's like a short term marriage. It's like all of the drama, but, not <laughs> but, uh, uh, but it's amazing. You know, it's like, it, we, we, you know, there's a huge emotional connection. There's a huge ability to, uh, communicate, uh, and there's a need for that. And, but, but at the same time, I mean, AB and I, what makes it so amazing is we just have, we just have a ton of fun. So we just yeah, kind of, so. once we're there, we just let it go and have fun. Exactly. And I think that's a, just such a huge part. Like what I felt we were getting a lot of feedback from, from people on Snapchat as we were starting to get, you know, dozens and then hundreds and then thousands of comments a day and stuff like that. I think people sort of, like somehow we sort of were lucky enough to be able to sort of capture that, that we are, even though we're doing this very serious thing with these big unknowns and, uh, you know, ultimately a lot of suffering a lot of the time, like just sort of discomfort suffering. Um, and yet we were like, we were having fun over there. And I think Corey and I are really different people in many ways. And that might've come across as well. And yet, you know, sort of our, our different sides of our personalities and his neuroses and my neuroses, they just kind of, sort of sync together and worked um, to where, where we made a really strong team. And while you guys are our teammates, I know that getting two people on top of Everest isn't just about you guys. Can you um, describe the scope of the operation? Because there's so many people, you, you said you had a doctor, there's Sherpas involved. Yeah. How big is that team? Yeah, so I mean, the team is so important. I think it's something that doesn't get focused on enough for something like Everest, especially with professional athletes. Like to pull together this trip, I mean, even before we left the United States, Corey and I started talking about climbing together in 2012. Mm -hmm. It took four years to make the trip work. And that's everything from, you know, other life responsibilities to our sponsors. You know, the trip was quite expensive. And so, you know, having supporters like Eddie Bauer and Strava and Soylent were a big part of being able to make this happen. And, uh, and, and then, um, you know, then we have this big office support staff through Alpenglow Expeditions who was dealing with permits and logistics to get into the country in the first place, which takes months. Mm -hmm. And then once we were on the mountain, we had our expedition doctor, Monica, at base camp. We had five Sherpa supporting our entire team. Okay. And one of those Sherpa were all, was really our climbing teammates. So his name was Paulden Namgay. And he actually climbed with us on our summit push wow. and was essential to once I decided to turn around. Um, he really became a big part, you know, no longer worried about Corey, knew I was the one who needed help. And he was part of, you know, helping me work the ropes and things like that when my hands were frozen to get back down. So the Sherpa, we have cooks at base camp, Nepali cooks who try to keep us, you know, we figure we burn eight to 10,000 calories a day when we're up there. And our cook team helps us to, you know, try to replace at least some of that. Um, so, so really, it is this extended team, and without it, I just I can't imagine even as strong as Corey and I can be in the mountains. I just can't imagine going to a mountain like Everest and and trying to put it together without that support. Wow. 
Um, so actually, this is really interesting. What do you eat on Everest? Like, you've got a cook team. Do you have to take like prepackaged food? Yeah, well, so at base camp, we. Uh, go ahead, Corey. Oh no, no, it's it's fine. You you again, Adrian does this for like a living, so it's like. <laughs> I just let him answer all these questions. He's smart. He's just smart. It's like, yeah, yeah. Why are you even not here? We're about to leave in, in two weeks, right, to do this again. And to give you a sense, we bring over 9,000 pounds of equipment for the mountain for the team. And that's from, from me and Corey and also for our eight-person Alpenglow team. So 9,000 pounds of gear, a couple of thousand pounds of that are food. And, a, you know, probably 800 pounds of that comes from the United States. So I'm literally in the middle of this right now. I'm standing in my condo with, like, you know, 60 boxes surrounding me. And down in my garage, there's another 90 boxes that has to be stuffed into duffel bags wow. so um yes at base camp we eat great uh we have this local cook team we import a bunch of our food from nepal and buy from locals in tibet as well and so we eat sort of like quote-unquote normal food but it's at eighteen thousand feet so nothing actually tastes normal and then and then above base camp we eat um whatever our bodies can handle and your digestive system really starts to shut down once you go above 18,000 feet or so. Mm -hmm. So it's mostly simple snack foods. Um, Ramen noodles are really popular. I love miso soups, lots of like candy and snacks. Um, You know, this year I'm going to be trying to eat more like cheeses and, and meats and things like that, just trying to get protein in and fats in. But it's, it gets complicated once you're above base camp. Yeah. Corey, what about you? I mean, I'm just a huge fan of, I, I have a really simple diet up there and it's, and it's just candy. No, uh, <laughs> I, it's just smart. Um, no, I tend to eat a lot of, I love mashed potatoes, mm-hmm. um, like the prepackaged mashed potatoes with, you know, with butter and all that. Uh, I mean, really all you're doing is adding fluid to flakes. So you're still taking in that fluid on level you're taking in a huge amount of carbohydrates, um, which are really, yeah, what, what I can burn. And I, I love ramen as well. So I'm, I'm all about uh, mashed potatoes, ramen, um, oatmeal, and then, you know, uh, drink mixes that that make the water sort of palatable and, and or palatable. And, um, and you know, I, I mean, a base camp, the cooks just take it. There's, it's such amazing food. I mean, you wouldn't even believe it. It's it's like it's delicious. I actually am looking forward to it right now. <laughs> and so, so Corey, Adrian says that you know Adrian does this for a living. Like you said, he does this for a living. Um, so this is part of his life. What, what kind of adjustment is it for you as a photographer to plan for a trip like this to Everest? I mean, you know, it's funny as a photographer. I haven't been there as a photographer in these last two trips. Uh, mm-hmm. My capacity there is really as a climber. I went as a photographer in 2012 uh, with National Geographic. And, you know, I what I try to do with, with storytelling while I'm there uh, is focus on the means that we're using most uh, prolifically. So last year that was Snapchat. I needed to adjust the way I actually see the world to accommodate the platform that we're using. Now, granted, I carry a small camera with me all the time, and and I try to shoot and film as much as I can. Um, but on trips like this, where I'm climbing without oxygen and Adrian's climbing without oxygen, I think it's paramount to be uh, less connected to the camera and more connected to uh, your partner. So 
Um, you know, I, I am paring it down this year considerably from what I took last year. And, uh, and that's, that's a consistent theme in my life and in my photography. Less is often more. You work more creatively um, and you often create better work when you have less to work with. Mm -hmm. It's sort of forcing yourself to work within the confines of the paradigm. And I, um, this year I'm not, you know, I'm taking probably two cameras. That's it. Um, so, I mean, I'm looking forward to it because it's not, you know, I'm not there necessarily to be a photographer. And to me that is on some level very much a relief because it makes, it allows me to take photographs from a place of joy versus a place of obligation. Mm -hmm. And what is the most important piece of, of tech that you guys are taking with you, do you think? You've got your phones and cooks, but is there anything that, you know, if you didn't have, you're pretty sure you're tr it wouldn't be a success? Wow. Um, I mean, it depends on which piece of the trip, right? Like, are we talking about the storytelling component? Because then we need satellite internet, and well, that's a really important piece. Well, I mean, just to make it back down alive, <laughs> like... <laughs> well, I mean... Well, then it's like a down suit, right? Like, Eddie Bauer, we literally have these um, down suits designed, which are basically like this sleeping bag so you can walk in and climb in, but mm -hmm. there's these massive, you know, sort of Michelin man suits. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, if I, yeah, there's just no way I could go above 8,000 meters. I, you know, I weigh 140 pounds. I'm six foot two. Um, without a really well-designed, super warm suit, I wouldn't have a chance. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, it's suits, uh, the down suits, um, our boots uh, are made by a company called La Sportiva. Mm -hmm. You know, if you lose the ability to use your hands or your feet, um, basically that means you're incapacitated, right? You can't clip, you can't use the ropes, you can't, you know, if your feet get too cold, you lose sort of the dexterity that you need to walk, mm -hmm. and you're already struggling with that, especially without oxygen. So. All of these little components, um, the, the, the mittens we use, the boots we use, the down suits, all of these things add up uh, to, to make it possible. So no one piece per se is necessarily more important than another, but managing all of them and having, you know, managing yourself and your partner as cohesive units, mm -hmm. uh, that's what becomes really, really important. And while you guys prep to go up there, um, I know there's always a lot of criticism or there's always a lot of stories about whether or not people should be climbing Everest because it is so dangerous. Um, and I think last year there were, what, maybe 2016 or there were six deaths on Everest. Uh, how do you feel yep. about that? Like, is that, do you think that Everest is something to be climbed? I, I absolutely do. Uh, and that's probably a pretty obvious answer since this right. is a big part of what I do for a living and I go every year. But like, I don't ever want to see risk completely removed from our world. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Everest has danger is a huge part of what makes it so special in people's lives, I think. And it's what differentiates this athletic achievement from, say, doing an Ironman or something like that. The thing that, that makes it, that, that for me, encompasses not only my physical ability, but also my mental and emotional strengths or the fact that there's risk and you have to make good decisions up there because there are consequences to your decisions for you and the people around you. Mm -hmm. um, so I absolutely think we should be able to go and do these things. Where I find the ethical quandary is if we're hiring people like Sherpa or guides mm -hmm. to help us get to the summit of the mountain, then 
once it becomes a job, once it's an employer-employee relationship, then there must be standards of safety. And currently on the mountain, those standards of safety are not maintained by the government. And that's leading to a lot of unscrupulous business practices and companies out there. Um, and so that's a big sort of cause for me, right, is to try to shine light on the fact that we have to self-regulate if the governments aren't going to regulate for us and try to climb these mountains in ethical ways. Yeah, I, and I, whenever I hear, um, I mean, it's okay, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but I do ask wh why people are, are opposed to climbing. And what I generally find is that the answer is, uh, is less spectacular than, than most people want it to be. Um, there is no reason not to climb. We've been climbing mountains since, since you know, before we, was, we were recording history. I mean, we've always revered mountains as a place uh, that hold some level of uh, unique, uh, I don't want to say power, I don't want to be like cosmic here, but, but, but mountains are special. And we've always gone to the top of mountains and it's, and it's sort of built in us. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think when people criticize Himalayan climbing, specifically Everest, it generally comes from a place of uh, ignorance. I mean, it's, it's, you know, they're, they're probably just not educated on the topic. But there's one very, very consistent thing, and that's that they do bring us together. Climbing mountains in every way brings us together. And like I sort of said about Everest at the beginning, it's a unifying thing. That's not unique to Everest. That's all mountain endeavors. Uh, and so I don't know. I don't, you know, I, it doesn't resonate with me. But again, people are entitled to their own opinions. Um, and, I, and I really echo what Adrian says, you know, about risk. A life without risk is, uh, it's not a life I really want to live. You know, and it's, that's not to say I'm an adrenaline junkie. Because that's not the point either. Mm -hmm. In fact, as we've said, if you're feeling adrenaline, we've done something really, really wrong. Uh, but I don't want to live life without risk. That seems um, that, that I think that's where we gain the most value and we learn the biggest lessons is when we do have to make decisions that have serious consequences. Do you think that's a misconception about, you know, maybe people who mountain climb and do adventure sports is that they're adrenaline junkies, right? That is something that you often hear said. Is that probably the biggest misconception? I think that's one of the biggest for sure. What, what are the yes, yeah, so do I. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I get asked that all the time if I'm an adrenaline junkie or it's sort of assumed. Mm -hmm. And I actually feel like I'm very much the opposite. Like what I thrive on is mitigating risk. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, minimizing it. And if I actually feel a shot of adrenaline while I'm climbing a big mountain, it probably means something's gone wrong, right? Like I, it's not what I'm searching for. Mm -hmm. it's, it happens and when it does happen, we have to deal with it and work through it. But my job is to, is to never get to that point. All right, cool. I sorry, Corey. I didn't know if you were gonna jump in there. Or not. Oh no, no, no. That yeah, I was. That's uh, that's. I mean, I, I said that we Adrian and I can talk for each other. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> well, I guess I mean after spending all that time on the mountain together. Um. So what I think last year when you guys climbed up, you took a different route than something that than that was a, than what is most popular. Are you doing that again this year? 
Yeah, we're going in from the north side, from the Tibetan side. I wouldn't say it's less popular. I'd say it's logistically more challenging mm -hmm. to get into China. Um, I think it's also much, much safer in terms of the objective hazards that we put uh, Sherpa and and support staff through. Uh, on the south side, through Nepal, there's the Kumbu Ice Fall, which is where the uh, huge avalanche happened several years ago. Um, that's an area where people uh, where people tend to to get hurt, um, and there's a lot of traffic through there to to make the mountain infrastructure actually work. Uh, on the on the north side where we're going, there's there isn't that ice fall, so you're not going through that incredibly active glacial region, that zone, and so you mitigate some of the risk uh, for the support staff, um, the needless risk. I mean, it's risky enough just being at altitude and, and exerting yourself like that. So uh, this side is also, the north side is a little bit more dangerous in terms of the actual climb, largely because you're at high altitude for so much longer than you are on the south side. Um, but there's some pluses to that as well. You know, you spend a lot more time uh, much higher before you actually start doing any of the technical climbing, which helps you with your with your acclimatization. So there's some big, big pluses to going from the north. And and for me, it's also there's, there's just less people, which I like. So, um, and, and also, you know, you can't, there are no helicopters on the north side. So you are really, really self-reliant and self-sufficient. If, if something goes wrong, then then you have to deal with it. So that is a big question. What if something does go wrong? What are kind of some of the scenarios that you've prepped for? Or do you do you even think that way? Or do you prep yeah, for everything? Yeah, we definitely think that way. Okay. And, and attempt to prep for everything, right? Especially like after nine seasons on the mountain, I've seen everything from the, I was there for the huge earthquake. I was there for the big ice fall disaster in 2014. And then seen sort of countless smaller incidents amongst my team or other people's teams. And so you do certainly try to prepare for everything. And the fact that there are no helicopters on the north side, that's a big reason why Alpenglow has such a large infrastructure on the mountain. You know, bringing an expedition doctor to base camp to be with us for the entire season. Mm -hmm. The idea of that is that if we have an incident, she can deal, you know, she essentially has a surgical suite there at base camp, along with really high end, you know, altitude uh, drugs and equipment to deal with altitude, to deal with frostbite, to sort of deal with all the common things we see. So that's a big part of it. And then it's just about having logistics in place to be able to get someone out quickly if there is uh, a, an accident or an illness. And so we've sort of devised a system of, you know, jeeps and, and runners and liaison officers. So we think we can get someone off the mountain into definitive care within 24 to 36 hours, which is a, is a reasonable window, in our opinion, for being on a really remote big mountain. And do you guys still get scared going up there? Like, has there ever been a time where you're where you were fearful? Like, this, this might be it for me? Uh, I mean, I I'm always scared going, going to altitude and being on high mountains, but I don't think it's a I think if you're not scared a little bit, you're probably not paying attention, um, or you've or you've let your ego get a little bit outsized, uh, because these you know when things go wrong, they go wrong really quickly, mm -hmm. um, and you know it's it's not a place to to carry any sort of pride. Um, 
I don't know. It's a, that's a that's a good question, Adrian. What, how do you feel about that? That's yeah. I mean, so certainly, I feel sort of big big picture fear with a trip like this. So you know, it's something I think Corey and I both have had close calls in the mountains, obviously, and um, so really leading up to a big trip like this it's something i think about a lot and it's something i talk about a, a decent amount with the people i love you know i have a great girlfriend who's also a professional climber and has climbed everest so she really understands the risk mm -hmm. um and my my dad you know my family now has, have been a part of this since i started high altitude climbing when i was 17 years old and so there are conversations we have about sort of the risks and why it's still worth it why i'm choosing to do this trip this year things like that um, so, you know, I feel I, it, it's sort of an abstract fear, but certainly feel a respect for mm -hmm. the mountains and what I'm trying to do there. Now, now, Corey, how do you handle it with, with your family? Were they against you going, supportive? Oh, you know, my parents, my, my dad is a climber or was a climber. My mom was a climber. Um, they are, they brought us up climbing and skiing. They started us skiing when we were Two, my brother and I, okay. uh, climbing when we were five, and I think there's some level of, uh, you know, I'm sure. Yeah, I know my mom worries. She's she's a mom. I think my dad probably has a different coping mechanism for it. Um, but we also have a pretty, you know, solid understanding that no news is good news, <laughs> and uh, you know, because I'll go on assignment, I'm equally as likely to get hurt going on assignment to Africa in some remote place where there's still a whole bunch of landmines in the ground as I am to get hurt on Everest. So we don't really discern in our family, uh, the, you know, the, between the two. I think it's very much, well, this is, this is the way life's evolved, and we're super happy and proud of that. As a family, I'm proud that my parents brought me up the way they did, and, I'm, and I think they're proud of me for what I do. Um, and so I think it would be, if something were to happen, of course we'd all be, yeah, well, I'd probably be dead, but... <laughs> Uh, you know they'd be sad but I also think uh, it would it would it's you know we understand that risk and, and we deal with that and and we're very vocal about uh, our care for one another and how much we love each other in the event uh, we don't get the opportunity to say it again I think that's really interesting because I don't think a lot of families or a lot of people kind of have those conversations with their loved ones maybe never in their lives and this kind of forces you to have it like once a year with, with everyone that you're close to. Yeah, once or five times true. a year, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is an interesting way to live. Um, Adrian, I know you have to run to a dentist appointment, um, so I'll just wrap up with, yes. Yes, with my final question. Um, what is going to be a successful trip for you on Everest? What's going to make it a success? That's such a great question because I, I, you know, I've thought so much about this from last year as well. So, you know, last year was clearly a failure for me, not summiting, mm -hmm. and yet the trip as a whole felt like such a success with Corey standing on top and with all of us coming home with fingers, all of our fingers and toes. Because um, that's still the bottom line, right? Coming home first and foremost. Mm -hmm. But of course, the success for me is going to be. Corey and me together on top on the summit of the mountain without supplemental oxygen and hopefully this time getting to you know you might have heard that uh we actually didn't Corey didn't get sick of snap from the summit last year because his phone died on yeah. top so 
you know, I feel like my biggest goal is getting on top and standing on top. And I think, you know, a little more pressure is on Corey to actually document it. Yeah, my biggest goal this year is snapping. No, I'm just <laughs> That's success. That's success. Like, you're like right a millennial. There. You Social just want to snap media. it. Yeah, that's all I care about is snapping. It didn't happen otherwise. That's right. Yeah. I don't even care about climbing. <laughs> all right, Adrian and Corey, thank you so much for joining us. The Snapchat is at Everest No Filter. You guys, we look forward to your updates. Um, thank you for joining us, and please be safe, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to you when you are back. Thanks so much for having us. All right, thanks, thanks so guys. Much.